we continue our study in Daniel, we'll be in chapter 4 this morning. Daniel 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful morning. The privilege we have to gather in this place, to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son. Pray for your blessing on this day's teachings. I'm throughout every Sunday school class, all of our teachers in this room, and in preparation for worship this morning, as people come in throughout the county, prepare us, fill us, enable us for your glory. Amen. Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me, so I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached the sky, And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree. And cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. We'll stop there. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before stumbling. Habakkuk 2, verse 4, Behold, 
As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by faith. In Daniel 4, down in verse 37, we read, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. You know, although most sins in the 21st century um, have been downsized or, or renamed to, you know, antisocial behaviors such as, you know, stealing and coveting, they're now antisocial behaviors, or as um, unhealthy practices, um, the sin of gluttony and bulimia and anorexia, and that of mental illness when referring to mass murder. Still, most people are quick to caution another with the familiar phrase from Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction. And they're even quicker to take delight when another, they, they, they enjoy, they bask delightfully when they see another fall prey to their own pride. They see the, the results of their pride and they cheer. But that's the funny thing about pride, amen? We're quick to see it in everyone else. and Rarely do we see it in ourselves. And it's definitely easy for us to celebrate ourselves in comparison to this mighty monarch, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, although none of us is exactly like Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, he played a very special role in the history of God's redemption. Nevertheless, the text does have, have a, broad, a broader application than just a mere historical remembrance. We're reminded in Romans, look at it, chapter 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our what? Instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You know, if someone would have asked Nebuchadnezzar in the early days, who is king? they would have received a definitive answer. Who is king? I am great Nebuchadnezzar. I am the king of the whole world. I'm king over the world. And don't you ever forget it, had he allowed the questioner to live. You know, the prophet, the prophet um, Isaiah, he calls Babylon the glory of kingdoms. And he alludes to its reign as this gigantic empire that encompassed the area, in modern terms anyway, from Egypt to Iran to Syria and Saudi Arabia. A mighty kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar City was, was incredible. It was home to the, the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So the king really had you know, no shortage of reasons uh, to be puffed up with pride. He was a mighty monarch. But had someone asked the same question towards the end of his reign, he probably would have replied, who is king? Almighty God, the God of heaven is king. And don't you forget it. 
That's a remarkable change of view. Well, Daniel 4 is the record of what brought it about. A proud, proud monarch, this mighty king, who believed in his own supremacy, is turned into a very humbled man who declares the supremacy of Almighty God. Now, the chapter, if you noticed, contains the words of Nebuchadnezzar himself. A proclamation by the king that details the the extraordinary events that brought him to the realization that only God is king. God is the true king. He is the king of kings. And that happens when, notice, he is at home in his palace while, as he puts it, at ease and flourishing, verse 4. One year later, jump down to verse 26. We see in 26 through 29, the king is stricken with a loss of sanity for a period of seven times. Now, that's often interpreted to seven years, but it's, it's more likely refer, referring to completeness symbolized by the number seven. That is, the time it takes the king to acknowledge Yahweh's sovereignty over all things. And then he regains his sanity. Now in this passage, um, we come to a climax. Climax of a theme that's been repeated throughout. In every chapter, over and over again, the kingdom of God and its sovereignty over kings and kingdoms of the world is on display. In Daniel 1, we see God's sovereignty over the nations, over individuals. Jehoiakim was delivered into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Who delivered him? God. And we see the, the, the persevering purity of the hearts of his people, that is Daniel and his three friends. In chapter 2, we see um, God's sovereignty shown to us in that Daniel alone is enabled to interpret the king's dream. In chapter 3, we we see his sovereignty shown to us in the preservation of of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the midst of the fleeing or the fiery service as they flee and walk out. They walk through and walk out of the fire. And that's a theme that resounds um, throughout chapter 4. We see it in verse 17. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is command of the holy ones that, notice, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. We see it in 25b. The most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. 26b. You will be assured, after you, you will recognize that it is heaven that rules. And then in verse 32b, a time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. God is sovereign, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, he is Lord. 
So those verses define for us um, the focus of the theme of of Daniel. The the idea um, our Lord would have us to see in this chapter is just that. Over and over and over and over again, God is sovereign. So Daniel is a a narrative-based account, an argument that proud empires will fall. And even though this proud empire had taken Jerusalem, the real power behind its ability to do so was God who sits on the throne. It's beautiful. I love it. Earthly sovereignty is always under the absolute sovereignty of the Creator. Amen? You know, the, the British historian Lord Acton in the late 19th and into the early 20th century, observed that a person's sense of morality lessens as his or her power increases. And he famously said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Nebuchadnezzar was a glaring example of that truth at this time. In his first dream of that colossal image, you recall, um, it frightened him, it tormented him day after day, it pounded him, and remember in that vision, only the head of that colossal figure was made of gold, chapter 2, verse 32. Now, seemingly humbled by its meaning, chapter 2, verse 47, Daniel comes in, he gives the meaning of the dream, um, that humility was short-lived. As he proceeds to build a 90-foot statue representing himself, his gods, and his kingdom, he made the whole thing gold. Chapter 3, verse 1, requiring all to bow before it. So, seemingly humbled... By the miraculous deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, chapter 3, verse 28, he's given another fearful dream. I just read it. Interpreted by Daniel, as we shall see, um, basically that your power in this kingdom is going to be torn down like a tree, down to a stump, won't be uprooted down to a stump. You'd think that would have humbled him. Chapter 4, verse 27. Okay, but notice, one year later, as he's strutting like a peacock on the fat, flat roof of his palace, looking around, looking down, talking to himself, the subject of his conversation is about his own imperial greatness. Look at what I've done. A year later. Verse 30. Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Did you notice that that is the exact antithesis which which attributes God To God, that is, the power, the kingdom, and the glory. 
So it's not surprising, while the words are still on his lips, God's judgment falls. Wow. So it's not until he's humiliated, brought to the ground like a beast in the field, driven into a state of insanity, that he truly understands his frailty and his folly before Almighty God. Not until then does this guy realize that he is fully dependent upon God for everything. Everything. And that he is but an instrument in the hand of omnipotent God. And notice um, the proclamation of the praise given by Nebuchadnezzar after his recovery. That's what begins the chapter. The first three verses take the form of a letter from the king to the hearer, identified, notice, as all peoples, nations, and languages who dwell upon the earth, may your peace abound. This is after the seven times. This is after that season of of walking around like a beast. So Daniel takes the letter from the king and incorporates it into his prophecy under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It becomes part of scripture. So most of the material we find in the chapter comes from Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony. It's really amazing. Revealing his affirmations about Yahweh one true and an almighty God, and things concerning this season of insanity. This is his record. Verse 2, It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done, notice, for me. For me. He has, as one writer puts it, gone from being a persecutor of the faithful, in the previous chapter, who has now become a witness to the faith from a persecutor to a preacher, similar to to Saul of Tarsus. Verse 3, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, he's certainly recalling his two dreams, the supernatural deliverance of these three um, Judeans when he refers to mighty are his wonders. He knows by now that his own rule as king will will end at some time. It will come to an end. Now, depending upon when this chapter was written, Nebuchadnezzar had been king for at least 30 years, perhaps even 40 Three or four decades, he rules when this record is laid down. So a man of his age and a man of his stature, uh, we would expect to be living very comfortably. And then this this life of ease and and feeling um, self-satisfied from all his um, accomplishments, at this point in time, historically, um, God decreed... um, to put him out in the wilderness. Verse four. 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my place. I saw a dream, and it made me very fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay in my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. But fine, and then he calls in the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in. He relates the dream and so on, and then he finally again um, has to call upon Daniel. Now, Nebuchadnezzar likely hoped that um, his own magicians um, would be able to interpret the dream so that he might be able to perhaps counter the dream. Tell me what it is, and maybe I have a chance at countering uh, whatever this thing means. Right? That's the classic pagan view of God's sovereignty. Okay, God has done this, but if I do that, God's plan will change. And unfortunately, some Christians view God's sovereignty like that, as though he's the great chess player in the sky. Word. (laughs) I've met him. Is that the case when we read scripture? The great chess player in the sky? I hardly think so. So, Since Yahweh had given the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, only a prophet of Yahweh can possibly interpret the dream. Verse 8, but finally Daniel, notice, Daniel came in before me whose name is Belteshazzar, according to, notice, according to the name of my gods, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him saying, O Belteshazzar, king of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. You know, it's interesting to see Nebuchadnezzar's trust in Daniel and an element of fear of Daniel. So it's almost like the king reminds himself that Daniel is Belteshazzar, named after my gods. You see that? So you can almost see his insecurity with the power of this man, Daniel, and his connection with heaven. So he's a, a little frightened of the kind of influence Daniel may have over him. I mean, this guy has manifested the wisdom of God throughout these three or four decades of his kingship. See, at the same time, he knows Daniel will tell him the truth. You ever had unbelieving friends like that? You're the Christian in their life. They come to you, you say something with regard to divine truth, they disappear for one, two, three, five, ten years, and then they come back to you when they're down and out or they're facing trouble or mysterious things, and they come to the one that they know will tell them the truth. Don't ever change the message. When you don't change the message and you stand on divine truth, God and his providence will bring them back into your life. Did we not just receive a, a text two nights ago from a girl that lives in Minnesota? We, we were able to, to minister to her for years. She comes from a, a tough background um, in our own home when she was a kid. You know, you know who it is. It's great testimony. So here, he knows Daniel will tell him the truth. 
Daniel describes the dream in verses 10 to 18. And notice, um, having read through it a little while ago, uh, this dream is, is primarily designed um, to bring about Nebuchadnezzar's confession of omnipotent, almighty God, to make him bow before the living God. You know, if the Lord wants a confession of his sovereignty, he's going to get it. The Lord always gets his man. Period. Now, when Daniel heard that dream, he was horrified. Notice, he he was appalled, we read, verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Notice his immediate reaction is, oh king, may this not be about you. (laughs) May it be about those who hate you. So this man, Daniel, genuinely cared for this king. This is no show. Daniel, who was living as a captive in a strange land under a rule, the rule of of those who had usurped the authority of Judah, carried them off into exile, he truly cares for the king. And he's been faithful in his position there, working in the world. So Nebuchadnezzar reacts to Daniel's reaction. Oh, Belteshazzar, don't overreact to this. Don't be troubled. (laughs) There's nothing to worry about, basically. Oh, but there is, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, but there is. See, the king is deadened. He's a spiritual dead man with regard to the spiritual ramifications of the dream. Not Daniel. Daniel's brokenhearted. Verses 20 to 27. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth, in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place, be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, 
May my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So this gigantic tree that spread throughout the whole earth is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's own self-estimation. It's a picture of what he thinks about himself. Now, he had a mighty kingdom, and many took cover under his reign. It reached toward heaven. It was seen by the whole earth. So, I mean, that is a sign that the king has an exaggerated opinion of his power and empire. As, as one commentator puts it, quote, his psyche felt secure and at ease. His, ambitious, his ambitions had been achieved. End of quote. In verses 17 and 25, the cutting down of the tree, this great tree, we see a picture there of Nebuchadnezzar under God's hand of judgment. And again, the sovereignty of God on display. But there's still a stump, which means there's hope. There's hope. It hasn't been uprooted. You ever cut a tree down in your yard? You leave a stump, you come out a few months later, and there's new growth. There's hope here. He's not going to root him out. It's not going to be killed. There's possible renewal. Notice the motive behind it all, verse 17. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Friends, that is a great verse to tuck away in your pocket, to tuck away in your mind and in your heart each and every time elections are at hand. The ones coming up. There is no one in any position, in any office that God has not providentially put in place. So what are you complaining about? I'm not saying you are, but... As I've said before, we all watch the news and we shake our head and go, really? Really? God's in charge. Whether those elections are local or national, he's in charge. He sets over it the lowliest of men. So the purpose of the dream was to provide the king a warning. This is a warning shot across the bow. Right here. So that he might repent of his pride. This is an opportunity to repent. You know, this to this very day in our own lives, we, we, are, we, we are not normally ready to examine our hearts before God. Normally. And yet in his grace... He will fire a shot over the bow of our lives. One commentator puts it like this. Those things that institute deep changes, so long as we're comfortable and at ease in this world, we will not examine our hearts. 
But, he goes on to say, when God disturbs the calm waters of our lives, we begin to seek different paths to pursue. End quote. It was Ian Duguid. Okay, notice the message. This is a conditional message. Right here. If the king will humble himself, he will not have to be humbled by God. God hates pride. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We read that in Proverbs. We read it in James. We read it in Peter. God warns us in Scripture of his coming judgment so that we will repent and turn to him. So as pride comes before a fall, humiliation must come before exaltation. We're so proud. Do you see how proud you are? Do you? We're proud people. We are proud creatures. We are proud. And by the grace of God and the resident presence of the Holy Spirit, in his grace in our sanctification, continually humbles us and enables us to humble ourselves. So the means of his grace and his word going out and warnings of scripture says, humble yourself in the sight of God, and we respond, that's an act of his grace, a means of his grace, the command, the imperative, repent. And we're enabled to repent because we have the spirit of God. So proud. I begin, man, I begin with myself. So proud. You ever walk through the day, you're just doing things. There's no one else around. You're just doing tasks and you're thinking. You're, you're just thinking. And then you're praying and thinking and repenting about what you're thinking about. Usually about how great you are. <laughs> and how, how, how foolish everyone else is. Is it just me? This man has noticed, he's, he's witnessed signs and wonders God has done for me, verse 2. For me. Now, signs and wonders, friends, in and of themselves, is not enough to change an individual. Never has been. Never will be. How many people witnessed the, the, the supernatural miracles of Jesus? They believed in his miraculous power and rejected him. Creator, Redeemer, Messiah, Savior. I mean, this guy witnessed three young men walk through a fire and out of it, not even smelling of smoke. That sign was not enough to humble him before Almighty God. Signs and wonders won't do it. Sinclair Ferguson said this, quote, the purpose of this dream and decree was not left to Nebuchadnezzar's imagination. It was to teach men that God reigns. And he sets up and pulls down kingdoms that his action in history focuses on the work of humbling men in order that they may dispense with their foolish pride and acknowledge him as their God. Another writer puts it like this. There is a God we want, 
and there is a God who is, and the two are not the same. We often seek the God we want, but do not know the God who is. And let me tell you this, it is precisely when we realize that the God we want is, the, is not the God who is, the God who is is, when we by his grace come to that realization, that is when true spiritual life begins. Until that day, we all have a God we want. Who's not the God who is. The God who is, is. Notice, God is incredibly patient. A year passes. The warning is gone out. But the warning goes unheeded by the man. Mistaking, perhaps, the, the merciful delay of God's judgment um, is a sign that it could be ignored. Verse 29. So here, Nebuchadnezzar, he's on the roof of his palace. He's looking down. He's looking around at Babylon the Great. You know, C.S. Lewis once said that a proud man is always looking down at things and people. He's always looking around. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that is above you. Or shall we say someone who is above you? So immediately a voice sounds from heaven. This is the fulfillment of God's judgment. He goes from being the most powerful man in the world and he's reduced to roaming the fields like an animal. Deprived of his kingdom, he's deprived of his kingdom, he's driven out from his palace for the appropriate judgment for a man who thinks himself to be a god. He must become like a beast in order to realize that he is but a human being. It's amazing. You will bow before this statue. If you don't, you die. God sends him a dream, gives him a warning, goes upward of a year, he doesn't repent. I guess God doesn't really mean business. And as soon as he walks about looking down, we're looking around, God strikes the man. And he's driven out. He lived with animals. He ate with them. His hair grew long like eagle's feathers. His nails like the claws of a bird. In other words, this dude went stark raving mad. A direct judgment of God. Verse 34 but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, noticed, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. Pride and madness go together as do humility and reason. Verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven 
and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Don't ever say that. We're prone to say that when disaster strikes. What have you done? Let's be honest. At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and nobles, and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. You see that? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This was the lesson Nebuchadnezzar learned. As he put it, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. Those who put themselves up against God God puts down. And God does remain in the business of humbling people. Now, two points of contrast between this king who lived in a span of time and the eternal king of kings who has no beginning and no end. Number one, when Jesus was speaking to the crowds during his ministry in parables, hiding the truth from all but his disciples as a form of judgment, that's what parables are. They're a form of judgment. Jesus said this in Matthew 13, 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown It is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. That is to say, Christ's kingdom had a very inconspicuous beginning. Twelve men. Twelve disciples. Exceeding all worldly empires, the gospel spreads to the four corners of the earth. To this very day, providing genuine shelter, true protection for God's people. That is, the king, the king of kings, who first descended, Philippians chapter 2. Here's another contrast, final, as we close. Have this attitude, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So from Genesis to Revelation, Scripture commends humility 
and castigates the proud. Same holds true to this day. Those who, are, who believe that they are masters of their own destiny and that they have achieved, have achieved their greatness by way of their own efforts, they will be humbled. Hopefully, they'll humble themselves here before they're cast into hell. So the time is now. May we never think more highly of ourselves. May we never think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Amen? Because this king humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, for you. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this account, this history, this amazing dream and its fulfillment. And more than all else, we're humbled and thankful how um, you condescended um, to become a man and to take care of and fulfill uh, that which we never could in order to save our souls from the judgment that is due. Praise you in Christ's name. Amen.